to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So in college, I studied uh, Arabic, and actually during that time, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Morocco. So if you don't know, Morocco is an Arabic-speaking country in North Africa. Um, We have a map up here if you're not sure where it is. Um, And not only was I able to go and study Arabic for the summer, I got to go with one of my best friends, Jamie. Um, We'd actually met each other in our shared Arabic classes. This was like a super wonderful thing for both of us. Now, here's the thing about Jamie. Jamie is wonderful, and she is so talented in so many ways. But Jamie has absolutely no sense of direction to speak of. Uh, Before we ever went to another continent, I was the one navigating us around and keeping Jamie from wandering off. Even going so far as to uh, grab her backpack to pull her out of walking right in front of traffic one day. So with her permission this morning, I'm going to make fun of her a little bit for some of our time in Morocco. You can imagine, given the uh, walking right in front of a car situation, my concern when we arrived in Meknes, Morocco together and had to start navigating a new city. Exactly how was this going to go? So one day, we were attempting to take the bus from our house with our host family to the souk. Um, So the souk is like a big outdoor market. It has everything from olives to flip-flops. Everything you could want, it's there. And to be clear, we had definitely been to the souk before. So we're taking the bus, and the bus as it is is a bit of an enigma in Morocco. We could never find like maps or timetables of how to get on it. So basically, we just got to the bus stop and got on a bus and like hoped for the best. So we're already not like in the best spot here. So the bus we were on was pretty crowded. We're both standing. We're separated from each other a little. I'm watching outside waiting for our stop. We pull up to one, just this random apartment complex, clearly not the souk, and Jamie just starts getting off. And I can't get her attention, and I don't want us to get separated in some random place, so I just get off the bus with her. And then I'm like, where are we, dude? Like, do you know where we are? Do you, why did you get off at the stop? Um, but no, she, she had no idea where we were. She genuinely thought that this was the souk, even though it was clearly a random apartment complex. And we had definitely been to the souk before. Um, and eventually we were able to make our way there, but I was adamant that in the future, we would be communicating more clearly about our destination before we just get off the bus, and that maybe I should take the lead on all the bus trips from now on. And now, to be fair to Jamie, there was one place where she did have the upper hand in navigation. In Meknes, there's basically two parts of the city. So there's kind of the newer part called Hamriya, and there's the older part of the city called Medina or the Medina. And the Medina part is maybe what you've seen in kind of movies about Morocco. It's got like winding streets and alleys, and there's like little shops and homes tucked throughout it. And it's basically a maze. Once I got in there, I just had no idea where I was going. I could like find our school and some shops, but I always needed to add extra time in navigating around because even things I had found before, I was not going to be able to get to without getting turned around. But Jamie... The same Jamie who could not get from our house to the biggest market in town. Same Jamie who I had to pull from walking in front of traffic. Once she got in the Medina, she could wind her way with ease. We could find stuff all the time. That made absolutely makes no sense. It still makes absolutely no sense. But for whatever reason, her internal map was such that she could get through the most complicated part of town, but not on the main route that we needed to take every day. <laughs> Clearly, our internal maps of what Morocco looked like to us were very different. And I imagine that you have been lost at some point, too. Um, and it's, it's usually not fun, especially if you're in a place that you've never been before. We need our maps, whether they're internal or external, to be accurate. Or we end up getting off the bus at the wrong stop in a foreign country and making our friends very stressed out. 
This goes not just for how we get from place to place, though, but for how we kind of move through the world in general. We all have different collections of ideas that help us to navigate life, from the literal, like, internal directions we have for how we get from our dorm to class or from our house to school, to the more complicated maps about how we spend our money, about what success means to us, how we handle relationships and conflict. Just like there can be a, more than one route to get from A to B, there are many different mental maps out there for how we interact with life. Maybe my internal map for dealing with conflict is that I avoid it at all costs and I just carry my resentment around with me until it leaks over everyone. Someone else might be following the I'll sleep when I'm dead map to success and they consistently choose work and achievements over rest and relationship. Maybe your mental map around money includes space for generosity, choosing to bless others with what you've been given. And all of these are potential paths for interacting with different aspects of life, but they're all going to lead us to very different places. And knowing that our mental maps are critical for getting us to where we want to go in life, we have to ask ourselves, are the maps that we've been using actually taking us where we want to go? Do they follow a route that takes us to a destination we want to be at? or are they leading us astray? And are the mental maps that we've been using aligned with truth, or are they riddled with lies? We've been learning in the last couple of weeks that the devil works through deception. Could those same deceptive ideas be working in themselves into our maps, taking us to places that we do not want to go? And if that's the case, how can we start to correct them? Can we actually fix our maps, or are we simply stuck following ones that we know don't work? But to answer these questions, I want us to step back a little bit and we would see exactly how our maps are drawn in the first place. So to really define it, a mental map is an internal set of ideas about how things work that we use to navigate the world. Ideas are the building blocks, like the different steps on our maps. And the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard called ideas assumptions about reality, which is really helpful as a definition for our purposes. These assumptions about reality, about how the world works, are pieced together to create a mental framework that ha we use to, to navigate through the world. God gave us incredible minds that are able to do this, that we can take these ideas and draw out maps to chart our course through life internally. And even more than that, God gave us imagination. We have the ability to hold in our minds things that are both real and unreal, things that are right here in front of us and things that don't even exist yet. I can imagine a reality where this afternoon I'm enjoying freshly baked cookies, even though those freshly baked cookies don't exist yet. Because not only can I imagine that new reality, we can make the unreal real using our bodies. Those non-existent cookies that I'm imagining, I can bring them into reality through my body, mixing dough and baking the cookies into being. Something that once only existed in our imaginations, whether that's cookies or an Ikea desk or a piece of art, can be made real through our bodies. Because we are made in the image of a creative God who brought everything into existence from God's infinite imagination. We too were made to imagine and to create. This gift allows us to imagine a world that is better, to share in God's holy and redemptive vision for the world, and then to work alongside our creator to bring that good world into existence. And through that combination of thought, imagination, and using our bodies, we're able to create and refine our mental maps. And this is very, very cool, but also has the potential to be very destructive because the ideas that we believe in our minds and then let into our bodies give shape to the trajectory of our souls. 
Put another way, they shape how we live and who we become. Those mental maps that we follow, the set of ideas about the topography of the world around us and how to live in it will shape who we become over time. It's one thing to just imagine cookies and then bake them into existence. But if our ideas lead us to sow discord, push us away from other people, to hurt ourselves and others, then living out those ideas is going to twist our maps and over time us into something that we probably don't like very much. If I hold the assumption about reality that the only way for me to be happy is for all of my wants to be instantly satisfied, and then I choose to live that out by catering to my every whim and desire, then that combination of imagination and embodiment will eventually twist me into an impatient, entitled, and grouchy person. Someone who gets mad every time I have to wait in line or whenever Starbucks runs out of my favorite drink. That idea shapes my map, and then following that map shapes me. And it's this process that the devil uses to uh, deform us, to pull us further away from God and God's goodness. We see this in the very beginning and how the devil interacts with Eve in Genesis 3. We read, the serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Here we see the devil doesn't come at Eve with a weapon and trying to force her to do his bidding. He comes to her with a lie, with a false idea that shapes Eve's view of reality. Did God really say that? Do you think maybe God's lying to you, that God just wants to keep you from something awesome? Under all of these is the big lie that the devil plants in Eve's mind, that God is not trustworthy, that God doesn't really care about you, that God doesn't have your good in mind. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our mental map about God's character is absolutely critical because God is the author of all reality. And if we struggle to trust God, then we're going to go looking for ways to make sense of reality in all the wrong places. Once the devil has successfully implants this lie in Eve's mind, we read that she was convinced. The lie had become a part of her mental map of whom she trusted, which she then followed with her body by taking the fruit and having Adam do the same. This deceptive idea shaped Eve's view of reality, which eventually shaped the trajectory of her and Adam's lives. And we're still dealing with the fallout of that lie. Because the devil operates in these kinds of deceptive ideas. And when we believe those lies, our mental maps start to conform to them rather than to the truth and to reality. If a physical atlas, or more accurately for our generation, if Google Maps told us that the fastest route from uh, Tucson to Phoenix was to go through Idaho, we would know that we had a serious problem. And the same thing goes for our mental maps. When they don't align with reality and instead follow deceptive ideas planted in the world by the devil, they lead us to a lot of hurt. 
When we believe truth, ideas that correspond to reality, we flourish. We show up to ourselves, to others, the world around us, and to God in ways that align with our creator's wisdom and care for us. But when we believe in lies, ideas that do not correspond to reality, we live in conflict and struggle to thrive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions, no matter how much we want it to. Just like with literal maps, if our mental maps are inaccurate and they don't correspond to reality, we will get lost. And very often, our world's maps to relationships, success, justice, power, leave us wanting at best and hurting at worst. We can feel very lost as those lies distort our ability to accurately navigate the world. It's like wearing those goggles that you might have seen that uh, simulate what your vision is like when you're under the influence of alcohol. You're going to find yourself bumping into everything and probably knocking your shin on a coffee table in the process. But there's a lot more than our delicate shins at stake and what maps we follow. As an example, our current uh, secular perspective on pornography is pretty lenient, if not outright supportive. It's all about doing what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody and it makes you feel good. And if you can't get laid, then porn is a great option because you know you gotta satisfy that desire somehow, right? And sure, maybe some of the porn industry isn't awesome, but you know, if you find ethical porn, then it's all gonna be good, right? You can find like fair trade labels on that. And that might be the most popular mental map, but it does not correspond with reality in the slightest. Pornography does hurt everyone involved and then some. And just the fact that there is a whole industry that grooms and traffics vulnerable girls and women using abuse and economic desperation to keep them trapped should at least give us pause on the as long as it doesn't hurt anybody line of thinking. And on the viewer's end, it doesn't really lead to real happiness or satisfaction. It merely scratches an itch, an itch that's going to get worse every time you go back to it and need a harder scratch every time it comes up. There's very well-documented evidence that over time, porn rewires the brain to crave it and to need increasingly dark and violent content in order to satisfy that same craving. It is not some innocent thing. It's an idea that warps our mental maps, and the more we follow that map, the worse it gets. There is no such thing as ethical porn because there's always some level of harm involved, and that flies in the face of everything about ethics. There's harm to the vulnerable people forced into the industry. There's harm to the viewers who are trapped in cycles of loneliness, addiction, and shame. And there's harm to the people that are affected even outside of that through the increased rates of sexual abuse and assault that are a dark result of the porn industry's work in the world. If we think that a laissez-faire approach to porn is a map to a satisfying life, then we are going to find ourselves very, very lost. And to be very clear, I am not saying this to cause shame or pain if addiction to pornography is something that you've struggled with. I don't want you to be lost, to be stuck with a map based on lies about sex and relationships that is just going to keep hurting you. We don't have to keep following maps that lead us to places we don't even want to be. The devil, on the other hand, very much wants you to be lost, to remain stuck in lies about the world, and to move you further from heaven and closer to ruin. God's way of living, the map aligned with reality, pushes us outward towards love and community. The devil's maps, on the other hand, will pull us inward, turning that love upside down into a self-centered spiral that gets us nowhere. 
M. Scott Peck, a psychiatrist and author who actually started as an atheist and became a Christian much later in life, posited that people become evil through lies, that they believe and live out false narratives about reality that eventually lead to ruin. And rather than following truth, we can find ourselves following an ideology instead. Ideology is a form of idolatry. It's a secular attempt to find the metaphysical meaning of life, a way to usher in utopia without God. The best definition I know of ideology is when you take a part of the truth and make it the whole. In doing so, you imprison your own mind and heart in lies that drive you to anger and anxiety. It promises freedom, but produces the opposite. It does not expand and liberate the soul, but shrinks and enslaves it. It matters that our mental maps are aligned with truth and not lies that sound really good but fall apart as soon as they butt up with reality. What clouds our maps and holds us in bondage are not physical chains, but ideas. To quote Dallas Willard again, ideas are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. Deceptive ideas can hold us captive in cycles of pain and shame that can be very hard to get ourselves out of. There's the lies that we see splashed across our TV and our social media feeds that sow conflict, that marginalize the vulnerable, that trap us in cycles of striving and hurry. But there's also the lies that are internal. It's those insidious voices that feed us lies about ourselves. I'm a bad person. I will always fail. I will never be loved. I must be successful in order to have peace. If people really knew who I was, they would shun me. I can never admit a single fault or my life will fall apart. We are all in bondage to some degree to lies like these. When I'm not in a good place mentally, or when I'm not engaging in spiritual practices that root me in the truth of Christ, my mind goes right to the same lie, that you are only worthy if you are perfect, that you have to be able to do it all and never need any help. And out of that lie springs many other ones, like everyone will resent me if I ask for help, that if I can't get it together perfectly, that I'm going to be a bad wife or a bad parent. And the more I believe those lies and the more I live as if they are true, the more lost I feel. It pushes me away from people who can speak truth into my life and away from God, who is the source of all truth, who could truly help me to write my course. But I don't have to stay there. And you don't have to be stuck with a map that leads you to hurt either. Honestly, this lie of perfectionism as the base of my worth is probably going to be something that I'll work through with God for the rest of my life in different ways. And that's okay, because God is faithful to point us back towards reality, to help us uncover those lies that we hold about ourselves and to replace them with truth over and over again. We know that Jesus came as a teacher, but another way to think of that role is as a map reader, as someone who can show us the way when we're lost. In John 14, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, a guide who can accurately assess our maps and correct them to reality. For Jesus, truth is something that we can know. It's not just conjecture or opinion. He tells his followers, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is the truth and he knows reality better than anyone. Who better to help us fix our mental maps? If I wanted the best route from here to Mount Lemmon, I would ask someone who's done that route before, who lives in Tucson, who knows the lay of the land. I would not ask someone who is currently in Toronto, who's never been here before. They don't know how to get there. 
If I want a better mental map for navigating the reality I'm currently in, then I want to consult with someone who has a really good grasp on truth and reality. There is no better source for this than Jesus. Jesus calls us into relentless truth-telling, to face the lies that we have been following and work to extricate them from our souls. And since we're being relentless truth-tellers here, I have to be honest with you and tell you that this is not an easy process by any means. But as John Mark Comer puts it, it's only in coming face-to-face with reality as it actually is before God that we find peace. Uh, Recently, I kind of saw or rather listened to this on a podcast that I really like. Um, I'm very into true crime, as some of you know, and I listened to a podcast called Crime Junkie that's hosted by two women uh, named Ashley and Britt. Uh, Earlier this year, uh, Crime Junkie released an episode that had Ashley sobbing and letting uh, the listeners know that Britt had suffered from a spontaneous brain bleed requiring multiple brain surgeries. And which is just terrifying news. Britt has a husband and two kids, and Ashley is her best friend and was understandably terrified for her. Um, over time, Ashley's been giving updates on the podcast while Britt has been out, and thankfully it sounds like Britt has been doing really well and recovering well. And very recently, they released an episode with Britt on it again, which I was excited to hear. Um, and I figured Britt would go on and just kind of talk about how she'd been doing and thanks for the well wishes and that sort of thing. But surprisingly, what she ended up talking about was not only her recovery from multiple brain surgeries, but also her deep struggles with alcoholism, which had never been mentioned on the podcast before. And it was actually a pretty shocking public confession because she talked about how her alcoholism had led to severe malnourishment and anemia that likely caused her brain bleed and how much shame she had had around those struggles. Even Ashley, her best friend, had no idea how bad it was before she landed up in the hospital. And Britt shared that her wake-up call was when her husband and Ashley staged a small intervention with her after one of the surgeries and begged her to get help. In that, Ashley shared with Britt that she had brought two outfits to the hospital, one if she was going to sit with Britt in recovery after her surgery, and one if she was going to go to Britt's funeral afterwards, because that's how serious the situation was. And Britt was not happy about the intervention initially. She threatened to storm off, but the reality of the situation, the brain bleed, the surgeries, being hooked up to all kinds of tubes and equipment in the hospital, while two of the most important people in her life begged her to get help, facing the painful reality that she had just barely gotten through this with her life, pushed her to get the help that she needed. She was able to enter a treatment program and is currently sober and actually doing really well, which is wonderful to hear. And coming face to face with that reality brought her to a place of freedom and healing, even if that reality was very, very hard to come to. As author David Foster Wallace said, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. And at this point, you may be thinking, Megan, this kind of sounds like it sucks. Why would I want to correct my mental map if it's going to be so hard? It's gotten me this far, right? And who's to say Jesus knows better about reality anyway? And these are all fair questions. Can we really know what reality is, what right and wrong is? Are we actually all just living in the matrix and we're going to wake up all knowing Kung Fu one day? That would be awesome. I just don't think that's what's going to happen. And sometimes the messaging that we receive from both the world and even from the church is that living by faith means that we have to completely turn our brains off, just ignore facts and evidence and just live as if those things aren't true. Is this really what Jesus calls us to, though? I really don't think it is. There's this assumption in the world right now that things like morality, ethics, the meaning of life just can't be known. 
Dallas Willard called that the uh, disappearance of moral knowledge. The implication of this is that living by faith in any sense inherently means that we live without any sort of reason or intellect. And for example, we see this in the language that gets used when somebody announces that some scientific finding proves something in the Bible. We hear like, oh, well, you know, before we just believed it, but now we really know. And that's not to say that when the scientific and the theological intertwine, it's not very cool. God made a beautiful and complex world, and the more we discover that how those things intertwine is a good thing for us and our souls. But the language we use around it shows that we have already separated faith and reason in our minds. But all of us live by faith in some capacity, as Comer tells us in Live No Lies. We think of faith as something for religious people, but all of us live by faith. To have faith in something is simply to live as if it's true. It means to put your trust in something or someone and remain loyal to it. The question isn't, do you have faith, but who or what do you have faith in? Because we're all navigating by faith in maps of reality. It's just what we're putting our faith in, what we rely upon to show us the way accurately that differs. Jesus and the other scripture writers did not teach faith as something that's opposed to reason or to discerning truth, but that they're very much intertwined. Faith that is based on knowledge and reality, not against it. And knowledge and wisdom is something that's talked about all the time in the Bible as something of great importance. Jesus tells us that, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Here, Jesus is defining eternal life itself as a form of knowledge to know God and Christ. Paul wrote to the Colossians, in him, meaning Jesus, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus and the other writers of scripture want us to have faith in Jesus and his teaching, a faith that is based on true knowledge of reality. And if we don't believe that we can even have a real knowledge of reality, then we can never correct our maps and we're going to remain lost. We will keep following those broken maps of the world, the ones that have been twisted by the lies of the devil and by our own limitations. And these do not lead to life and to flourishing. The truth, reality as it truly is, has, does not adjust itself to our illusions or to our desires. And when we care about someone, we will tell them the truth, even if it's hard and even if it would be easier to just pretend that everything is fine. In that Crime Junkie episode I mentioned earlier about Britt's struggle with alcoholism, Ashley shared that she had been willing to confront Britt to try and get her help, even if it meant losing her friendship, because that's how much she cared about Britt and her, and her being able to live. Jesus will share the truth with us if we are willing to trust that he has the deepest knowledge of reality, truth that will lead to a rich and satisfying life because he loves us and wants the best for us. Unlike the devil, Jesus does not seek to keep us lost in the woods of life. He proclaims sight for the blind and freedom for the captives, that Jesus is the light of the world and the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament did not see faith as a blind leap into the dark. For them, it is a lifestyle of unswerving trust and loyalty to Jesus based on his knowledge of reality. Jesus calls us, his apprentices, to repent and to believe the good news of God's kingdom. 
Repent and believe means that we must rethink our mental maps, releasing the lies that we have been believing and trust in the truth of Jesus that is aligned with reality. What mental maps do you navigate the world by? Whose ideas do you trust? And this is like a really big topic to just jump into, so it helps to kind of break it into some smaller areas. What are the set of assumptions that you have around handling conflict, around dating, around sex, around handling your money? Interrogate your current mental maps and ask yourself, do they align with reality? Are they leading you to flourishing? And if not, is there a trusted person you can talk to who, to help you start correcting your map? And when we come face to face with a lie, we need to confront it. We need to name the lie and respond to it with the truth from scripture. Internalize the truth that God speaks into our lives because that's what will help us to talk back to the devil's lies. Not gritting our teeth and burying it, not pretending that the lie isn't there and it doesn't hurt us, and not spiraling into shame. And if you're struggling to find scripture, to find a verse that speaks back to some of the lies in your life, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or to any a staff member here. We would love to help you work through this. When I find myself coming back to the lie that I must be perfect and do it all to be worthy, I try to go to Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God, or to Psalm 23 too. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me besides peaceful streams. These verses help me to center on the reality that I can be still and rest in God's love and care for me rather than hustling for my worth. It helps me to refocus my hurried soul on the reality that God is in control, not me, and that I can rest. This practice gently corrects my internal course away from hurry and perfectionism and towards the peace that only Jesus can give. And over and over again, I can keep coming back to this truth and allow it to shape my soul and my life into one of deep rest and contentment. Romans 12, 2 tells us that we can be transformed by renewing our minds. And out of that renewal, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, that we will be able to know what is true and good. God doesn't tell us to ignore reality or to stay lost in the muck of life, but rather that we are given the gift of knowledge and the ability to know truth, to align our mental maps with reality and walk with God on the road to flourishing. God doesn't ask us to turn our brains off and ignore the facts around us, but rather to trust God with all of our being. I want to end today on a really beautiful quote from the Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservations. I hope for each of us that we can learn to live with that kind of trust, that kind of trust in Jesus, the author of all reality, and that in that trust, we can come to know the deep love and goodness of God. Please pray with me. God, I thank you that you give us this gift of reason and imagination that you give us truth to follow, even when there are lies all around us, lies coming from external sources, lies coming from within ourselves, God, that you don't leave us to be lost and to sort through those on our own, God, but that you speak truth into them. Help us to center on that truth, even when it's hard, Lord, to come back to you over and over again and know that this will never be a one-time process, but that you are not a one-time God. You are faithful and present always, and we can keep 
coming back to you over and over again. We love you, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.